Senator Black is really in the unique position to give us his insights on the entire situation in Syria. And so I would just like to ask you to, to tell us about this trip that you've just come back from. Thank you very much. Uh, as, as you know, uh, I had a military career. I was a colonel in the Pentagon and uh, served in very fierce combat in Vietnam. And uh, and so I, I have lived with military foreign policy really throughout my life. Um, I had a tremendous visit to Syria. Uh, I met several hours with President uh, Bashar al-Assad, uh, the legitimate duly elected president of uh, Syria, recognized by the United Nations as the leader of Syria. And uh, uh, this is the second time that I've met with him. I met with him two years ago. Uh, and this time there was a, there was sort of a buoyancy, a, a spring in his step, uh, as he sees the, the final demise of the terrorists, uh, that we have funneled into Syria. Uh, they're trapped in a pocket, uh, in an area called Idlib province. Um, it's, it's an, it's a substantial area, but, but small in terms of the entire nation of, of Syria. We have trapped the greatest terror army uh, on earth in Idlib province. I say we, it's the Syrian army, the Russians and their allies. Um, but I say we in the sense that the civilized world has trapped them. Uh, these are the worst of the worst. The overall commander is a man uh, named Al-Julani. Al-Julani was uh, one of the principal lieutenants of al-Baghdadi, the founder of ISIS. And uh, so uh, al-Julani worked as the uh, head of ISIS in Nineveh province in, in Iraq. Uh, this man, he is the, the senior field commander for al-Qaeda in the entire world. And he is trapped along with these other terrorists in Idlib province. And uh, uh, the United States, ironically, has a $10 million bounty on his head. And uh, so he, all, all of the rebels have placed themselves under his general command. He is the commander-in-chief of all terrorists in Idlib province. Uh, I estimate, no one knows precise figures, but I'm estimating about 40,000 terrorists who are trapped there. Uh, they have nowhere to go at this point because no one wants them. They're dangerous everywhere that they go. Uh, wherever they go, they, uh, they are sworn to murder all infidels, all people who are Christians, Jews, uh, Alawites, uh, it doesn't matter what they are, any, any, even, even Sunnis, they are sworn to execute them if they do not adhere to the seventh century doctrines of ancient Wahhabism. The Syrian army has accumulated troops and surrounded this group. There's a great battle on, that's being planned. The, the dead-enders of the Western world, the ones who have 
who have tried to topple Syria for the last seven years uh, are determined not to give up to the final uh, moment. And so uh, we have excellent intelligence uh, out of Idlib province that has told us that British MI6 agents, and they're working through a group called Olive, uh, which is sort of a Blackwater spinoff, and uh, uh, they are planning a gas attack. There is some uncertainty whether it will be an actual gas attack or whether it's simply a faked attack like they did in Duma recently where there were there was no poison gas used but uh simply a pretext and the idea is they will they will have the white helmets who are part of al-Qaeda they're the propaganda arm of al-Qaeda they will be rushing around and they'll be treating people and they'll be photographing of course that's their principal job is to to get video They'll put it out and they'll say, look at this, the uh, the Syrians have used poison gas. Uh, now, those who have studied intensively know that there has not been a Syrian gas attack carried out any time during the war. You'd never know it from reading the mainstream media, but not one of them has panned out as being valid. Uh, but they will portray it the the mainstream media will report it immediately they will not say who did it they will immediately blame it on the syrian government as they have every time um it is striking that in all of the years 7 years not one journalist has ever said uh can you answer this question why with this vast war underway would President Assad order the killing of a handful of civilians and never employ poison weapons against the enemy? Uh, there's never, there's never been a time that, uh, faced with, uh, with thousands of enemy troops that, uh, that, uh, poison gas has been used. I'll give you an example. In, in the southern part of, uh, of Syria, there is a holdout group of ISIS. It's, it's approximately a thousand individuals. They have a tremendous defensive position. It's very hard to eliminate them from it. It's in the desert, uh, but, uh, very hard. And the Syrian army is, is working little by little to try to, to eliminate this pocket. If they wanted to use poison gas, the president could say, just put it to an end. Let's drop a half a dozen sarin gas bombs. We'll wipe out that thousand people and move on. He doesn't. He has never authorized the release of poison gas. And in fact, there is very little evidence to support the idea that Syria has any poison gas because under under the agreement with the Russians and with the United States, uh, they eliminated all of their uh, gas uh, supplies. And uh, if, if we ever suspected that they had it in a building, uh, the United Nations could immediately have access to it and find it. So we know that they're planning 
to do a fake gas attack. And the irony is that if the U.S. coalition responds by attacking Syria, we will be fighting shoulder to shoulder with Al-Qaeda, the same group that attacked the Pentagon and collapsed the Twin Towers, uh, killing 3,000 Americans, causing them to die in a blazing inferno, and we will become their allies. And as you mentioned, we are almost on the eve of the anniversary of 9-11, and, uh, and how ironic it will be if after these years uh, we are allied and we are fighting on behalf of the people who carried out the greatest attack on American soil in the history of the United States. I think that's really the most powerful, uh, that's the most powerful irony in this whole situation. And one would hope that the United States would pull back from, from participation in any kind of military attack, uh, on, on the, the Damascus, uh, government and the, and the people of, of, of Syria. Uh, because, I mean, to, to your point, the, I just read that the monthly newsletter of the OPCW confirmed once again that all of the chemical weapons in Syria were destroyed or removed. Yes. Secondly, uh, as the Russians pointed out, if the United States has intelligence as to uh, chemical preparations being prepared by the Syrian government to be used in Idlib province, why not give that information to the OPCW so they can go and inspect? Yes. Those are two very direct things that uh, that, that that come to mind in this situation. Sure. Uh, one, one other thing. Let me let me mention this. In addition to uh, trying to defend the terrorists uh, by the use of this uh, false gas claim, uh, another another angle is to say it's it's just terrible. There'll be all this bloodshed of civilians, and so we shouldn't attack uh, Al Qaeda because we want to spare the civilians. It is the obligation of the Syrian government to liberate Idlib province and to liberate the civilians. Uh, people don't realize the utter cruelty and barbaric, barbaric nature of these people. Uh, one of the things that the Syrian parliament is wrestling with right now is that there are tens of thousands of Syrian women who were captured and uh, and impregnated by these uh, these filthy, unwashed barbarians that we have recruited from around the world to topple the government, and uh, and these are not marriages. This is not. Uh, these are not families like you think of in America. These are women who are slaves who have been purchased. They have been kidnapped in many cases. Um, and many times when they, particularly with the, with the Christian villages, 
they will make up lists of the of the women in the town and before the battle they tell each of the each of the soldiers uh if we if we capture this area you will own these women will will behead the the husband will behead the uh uh the the sons of the husband and then you will possess these women and so the people calling on us to simply leave them alone are saying leave those women to be perpetually raped uh by these these fiends who control this area and i think that would be sinful it would be deeply immoral in every respect and contrary to american values now you mentioned earlier uh the role of mi6 uh and this uh company olive yes which is a, a basically a private uh mercenary company that's about 5000 employees currently and and is expanding and they have reportedly been involved in the whole idlib operation and then of course you also mentioned the white helmets who are all were also set up by the british so you have the british directly involved in the uh this provocation in idlib province as they have been elsewhere and of course we did an interview uh i think back in april over the duma chemical attack and the opcw did not confirm the use of chemical weapons by the syrian government no they case. didn't and it, one of the things this was claimed to be a sarin gas attack um one of the unique things about sarin gas is it's extraordinarily persistent um they can detect a sarin gas release site 30 years later it doesn't break down like some chemicals do and uh so the uh the uh, opcw uh went in and and they said no no uh sarin gas um Uh, they did find a group of people who were dead about 35 people um uh but they were st- their bodies were staged i don't think they ever figured out what killed them um but they said no it could not have been chlorine gas either because chlorine doesn't kill you instantly like sarin gas uh and and typically people would flee an area with with uh chlorine gas and uh, they might die later on but they would they would certainly not be uh where the chlorine was interestingly when they 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 viewed bodies and they went back and saw these 35 bodies and they discovered that some of them had been rearranged and placed differently uh during the time that they were not there and that uh, also their their gold jewelry had been removed mm-hmm. uh so uh they were they were murdered uh perhaps poisoned but uh it was neither by sarin gas nor by chlorine gas and i think that was the determination of the opcw yeah. so here you have the most recent incident which resulted in in air attacks in yes. retaliation Yeah. The OPCW concluded that there that chemical weapons were not used. And then 
as I was I, as I was pointing to, that you have this other further irony, which is that the British intelligence is directly involved in promoting this thing. The same yes. British intelligence that has uh, been trying to carry out a, a, a coup d'état against the president of the United States, which has so far limited his freedom of action in terms of foreign policy. What do you think are the prospects for President Trump being able to pull back if this uh, provocation goes forward from such an attack? You know, uh, they, while President Trump, I'm a supporter of President Trump. I know some people aren't, some people are. I happen to be, I think domestically he's accomplished a tremendous amount. But uh, when he started off, he put General Michael Flynn in as his national security advisor, which really is the closest person to the president. Uh, the deep state focused on Michael Flynn. They knew that they had to get rid of him because he wanted to diminish uh, tensions with Russia. He wanted to work with Syria and end the war. And uh, they knew they had a great deal at stake. And so he was the first that they eliminated. Uh, Michael Flynn and I, uh, had exchanged uh, texts back and forth. I don't want to overstate it. I wasn't like uh, a confidant of his, but uh, the the final transmission, he's, uh, he, you know, he was convinced that, uh, that I had a place uh, working with the White House. And uh, he said, you and I have to meet within the next week. Mm. But it was during that week that... Uh, that uh, he was swept out of office. And now we have uh, John Bolton. And I will tell you, uh, if if someone were to put together a hundred names of, of foreign policy experts and were to say, uh, choose the top one, I would say, well, I'm not sure that I can do that, but I will pick the bottom one. The, the absolute worst possible person to control foreign policy that would be John Bolton John Bolton is is a man of war of bloodshed of conflict and uh, uh, I, I wish that uh, uh, President Trump would uh, would bring back the apprentice and call in John Bolton and say you're fired um, uh, he he might do something similar with uh, with Nikki Haley, who's our our top ambassador. An ambassador is someone who is supposed to find common ground, find ways that nations can work together. And every time she speaks out, she's threatening somebody with uh, uh, with bomb strikes and uh, and sanctions and punishments of different sort. Uh, I, I think she is a terrible example. But the problem is that the president, the president is not a foreign policy expert. And so when he sits down with the National Security Council, he's surrounded by these deep state actors and uh, he may argue against them. He may say, I want to get out of Syria. I want to do it very quickly. And then all of a sudden... He has six or eight or ten people saying, oh, that would be a huge mistake, and here's the reason why. And at a certain point, he thinks, you know, I don't want to do something that is going to be disastrous, so I better listen to my advisors. Uh, 
he tried to get us out of Afghanistan. And they just were adamant we can't be in Afghanistan. So we continue bleeding uh, lives uh, and uh, bleeding the, the treasury of the United States in Afghanistan. Uh, nothing to show for it after 17 years of war. The Taliban are on the march. Uh, it's only a question of time before Afghanistan falls. But the president, the president unfortunately lacks voices that are close to him who will raise the other side of the issue to say, Mr. President, I disagree. I see things this way. So that if his inclination is towards peace, he can say, I think I'm going to go with this, with this advisor. That would be a more healthy environment. And, uh, so it's very difficult. I don't know whether he can stop, uh, a, uh, uh, an attack based on white helmets propaganda and a false gas attack. I just don't know. Well, uh, hopefully the preemptive moves by Russia, Syria, uh, in bringing this to the UN and the OPCW. And also, we have been very active in, in getting yes. the word out at, at the UN uh, and Washington, D.C. And, and elsewhere around the country will be sufficient to avoid this disaster. Now, I would like to just ask you more in terms of your visit uh, to, to Syria. Um, I, uh, essentially, what you, uh, you, you said that uh, there was a spring in the step of uh, uh, President Assad. And I, I think you probably had an opportunity to get a sense of exactly how the, the uh, people of uh, Syria view him. Um, and uh, I think uh, you also mentioned the process of reconciliation that is going on in Syria. And so the question is, how, how has that contributed towards uh, hopefully a, a, a a resolution of this conflict. Yes. In I, you know, I, I traveled all around the country. Uh, two years ago when I went, we were in a, in a 12 vehicle convoy with three technical vehicles that mounted, uh, automatic cannon. Uh, we had, uh, attack helicopters. We had a, we had a, a MiG jet flying air support. All of that security to move me from Palmyra to Holmes. And uh, this time, my security was light. Um, I, behind me, I had, a, I had a vehicle with four photographers. Uh, and, and I don't think they had a weapon in, in their group. Uh, so I did have a little bit of security. It was very light. I wasn't in a bulletproof vehicle this time. And we traveled. We drove for five miles across Syria. We stopped, uh, we had to use rest stops and we just pick a, a little, like a shepherd's hut mm. and, and we go in and ask, could we, could we use your, your restroom? And it was amazing that there's the spirit of the people is so uplifted now that they see the terrorists mm. driven out of the country. They're hopeful, uh, and uh, and it was, it was remarkable. We didn't talk politics with them. We just 
you know, we were just friendly. Uh, but they would almost invariably uh, speak up and they would say, we are so grateful for our president and for our army for for liberating us and for freeing us from the terrorists. And these were common people. These were shepherds. These were, uh, you know, people who tended uh, olive farms uh, with little olive trees in the desert. Uh, they, they were in very remote places, almost out of control of the government. Uh, and uh, so, so there's this great feeling of optimism. You mentioned the reconciliation, and I, I will tell you, early in the war, uh, the government set up uh, a Bureau of Reconciliation where they would allow a, a rebel group to come over to return to the government side, and uh, their their men had to join the army because they, they have... They have a draft, just like we had. So you can't have draft dodgers. You know, we we didn't allow draft dodgers during during the Vietnam War. Um, and I was very skeptical. I thought, well, you know, the the uh, the terrorists, the rebels, they're they're going to simply say, oh yeah, sure, we'll do this. And as soon as as serious back was turned, they'd stab them in the back and betray them. Um, it just shows that foreigners can never completely understand the culture of another nation. And President Assad believed that this policy would work. And I've spoken to many people at many levels. They all agree it's been a magnificent success. In fact, the soldiers who were recruited from these towns, villages that reconciled with the government have joined the army and they have fought quite credibly. They've been excellent fighters fighting against the terrorists. And, uh, and in exchange, uh, Syria restores their complete civil rights, gives them amnesty unless, with the exception of a few, uh, horrific war criminals, uh, the typical person who simply got out there and fought, uh, fought the Syrian army uh they're given amnesty and uh and restored and it has worked everywhere and it has it has brought unity to the country and peace to the country uh everywhere so uh there is so much hope and optimism people are rebuilding uh even though we have a we essentially a blockade we call them sanctions but uh, you know, the international law says, uh, you can, you know, in, in wartime, you can cut off everything except food and medicine. Uh, if you do that, that is a, a serious war crime. We have circumvented that and we have cut off food and medicine by making it impossible to exchange currency. Uh, there's a rule in law that's very fundamental that you cannot do indirectly what you're forbidden to do directly. In other words, um, you're for, uh, a woman is forbidden to murder her husband, but uh, she, she might say, okay, well, I'll hire somebody and have him kill my husband. She can't 
do indirectly. She is still guilty of murder if she does that. Uh, The same principle applies in international law. So we are, you know, we have violated international law with impunity. And, uh, and it's very cruel. Um, all of the refugees want to pour back into Syria. They want to return to their homes. They want to rebuild. Uh, they still require some help. And one of the, one of the things that's, uh, that's very insidious is that, um, the United States and, and, and the other funders of the United Nations have, uh, prevented the United Nations from giving financial and medical support to refugees who return to Syria. As long as they stay outside in Lebanon and Turkey and Jordan, then we'll give them benefits. But as soon as they return home, we cut it off. And we do this in order to perpetuate uh, this refugee crisis. Already, in spite of this policy, uh, 300,000 people have returned to the city of Homs. Uh, 200,000 have returned to Idlib. Um, there are thousands returning to Damascus. And, uh, and uh, President Assad made clear to me, he said, look, he said, we have to rebuild this country uh, Syrians, Syrians are, they're very intelligent, industrious people, very honest people. And, uh, uh, and people will say, you know, we, we in Syria, uh, we, we rebuild with our minds and with our, with our muscles. And you can see it everywhere. Uh, you, you go through areas that, uh, uh there was one place where 5,000 university students had taken a week off and they were there and they were shoveling rubble uh, from the damage done by the terrorists, uh, taking it off in wheelbarrows and uh, and just cleaning things out, getting it ready for, for the reconstruction, repainting things. So there there is life all over Syria. Syria has come back to life. And you compare that to what the terrorists did. You know, we... We used to say the Free Syrian Army, these are moderate terrorists. I went to Malula to a convent uh, where the Free Syrian Army captured 12, uh, 12 nuns and kept them as human shields. And uh, the nuns were eventually recovered by the Syrian Army and, and returned. Uh, and they have an orphanage there where they take care of children. Many of them are the children of rape, mm. and uh, and many others. Their families were simply, you know, because they were Christians or something. They had their their heads chopped off, and the child had nowhere to go. Mm. But the nuns care for them, and they took me through the the convent. It's an ancient convent, beautiful place, and the Free Syrian Army came in. And they stole what they could, and then ancient icons that have been there for 500 and 1,000 years, they burned them, they torched them. Everywhere that they went, they killed Christians. Uh, the Christians, uh, heroically, they took to the hills that surround Malula, and they fought, 
and uh, and and the the free Syrian army could never overwhelm the Christians. And finally, uh, President Assad sent uh, the Syrian army in to rescue the Christians. Two hundred uh, Syrian soldiers died saving the Christians, and most of them were Muslim. Most of them were Sunni Muslims, but they died because there is this this bond between Muslim, Christian, Alawi, Druze, uh, Ishmaelites, uh, all of these people. People don't realize the cohesion of the Syrian nation. You think of it, here's a nation of 23 million people, relatively small country. For seven years, they have fought the combined industrial and military might of two-thirds of the world's nations. And, you know, I went to the Army War College. We studied wars. If anyone had said, okay, here's a situation. You've got this small nation, and you have all of the great powers of the world arrayed against them, uh, all of the media, all of the all of the financial system, everything, um, how will they fight? And I think all of the officers in the class would have said, it's not worth it. Just submit to whatever horrors they're going to impose on you. Uh, but they didn't. Yeah. They fought and they have won. And unless the United States and the UK and France come in on the side of Al-Qaeda, on the side of terror, unless we align ourselves with terror in this final battle, then uh, this small nation will win. And I will tell you there are two things. One is the superior leadership that they have had. Uh, it, it has been, it has been magnificent. It has been brilliant. The other thing, honestly, you know, I'm, I'm very deeply religious. I don't know any conceivable way that they could have survived unless it was the will of God. So, uh, things, things over there are, are looking up and I, I really hope if I go again in two years, I hope that the war is ended. The refugees have returned. I see building going on everywhere. Um, uh, you know, going back to that uh, to that convent, uh, they gather together the the orphans and and the orphans uh, crowded around me. And I, I I had two sitting on my lap. I have sixteen grandchildren, so I love I love small children. And, uh, and I think if we can bring peace, these little girls will not be sex slaves for ISIS and Al Qaeda. Uh, they will have happy lives. They will live normal lives. If, on the other hand, we, if we had succeeded, if we had toppled the government, all of the Christians would have been slaughtered. Uh, the, the women would have all been slaves. Many are slaves today, but, but all would be slaves. And, uh, the Syrian army and their allies have blocked this from happening. And we, they have avoided one of the 
one of the, the great immoral horrors of humanity. And I think that the civilized world should be very grateful to Syria for what they have accomplished. I think absolutely so. What you're describing in terms of uh, the Syrian policy of reconciliation reminds me of the Treaty of Westphalia, which ended the Thirty Years' War in Europe in the 1600s. And the basic conception was, I think it's common to all great religions, it's certainly expressed in, in Christianity, but it's also expressed in other religions, which is the concept of acting uh, uh, to the honor, uh, to the benefit, and to the advantage of the other, mm-hmm. which is a principle of <clears throat> of love. And uh, I think that that's that's the the power that has to be that 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 they are expressing, and that has to be really unleashed throughout the world at this point. Yes, and. Syria, in a certain sense, is a, is a uh, not because not for from their choosing, but they they it was part of an overall policy, including Iraq, Libya, Syria, and other nations, uh, to to really uh, bring uh, the world uh, into a very uh, bad uh, state. People, people need to realize that uh, our war in Syria, it didn't begin as, as us declaring war in Syria, but uh, uh, General Wesley Clark, the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, uh, is he's on video, you can see it on YouTube, excellent quality video, and he talks about two visits that he made to the Pentagon right after 9-11, and in the second visit, the first visit, uh, he said, uh, what's going on? And the, the general said, uh, we're going to attack Iraq. He said, why? Did we discover weapons of mass destruction? The general said, no. He said, it's just, we've got a powerful military. I guess we're going to use it. Uh, he went back to his second visit. Uh, he said, well, are we still attacking Iraq? The general said, no, it's worse than that. And he he took a paper, he, he waved it, it was a top secret document. He says, I've just gotten orders from the Secretary of Defense that we're going to topple seven Middle Eastern countries in the next five years. And uh, they included Libya, Syria, uh, uh, Yemen, uh, Sudan, uh, but ultimately ending up with, uh, with Iran. Uh, none of these countries had done anything to us. They had never done, they'd never done any, uh, any action that was hostile to the United States. And, uh, so, uh, that was one thing. And then in 2006, uh, Ambassador William Roebuck was the Chargé d'Affaires, uh, of the U.S. Embassy in Damascus. And he published a document, it runs uh, 8, 10, 12 pages, um, very widely disseminated throughout the hierarchy of the U.S. government. And uh, uh, in this document, which is available thanks to WikiLeaks, mm. 
and uh, uh, he laid out uh, the principles of how we were going to destabilize and topple the government of Syria. At the time, Syria had enjoyed 40 years of peace with Israel. It was not at war with any nation. Uh, it uh, uh, it had a, a it had no debt. Uh, had a very, very fine economy, uh, not, not wealthy, but, uh, good, good economy. Uh, it had the greatest religious freedom and the greatest women's rights of any Arab nation. 51% of their college graduates were women at the mm-hmm. time. Uh, women dressed as they wanted, they married whom they wanted, uh, they lived in freedom. They could travel around the world. They didn't need the permission of a uh, of their caretaker like they do in Saudi Arabia, and uh, uh, they really were the the model for all of the Arab world to emulate because uh, they were the most modernized, the most uh, advanced in terms of their philosophy and their outlook. Um, uh, we invaded Libya in order to capture weapons that we could send uh, and cross the border into Syria to overthrow the country. And, of course, uh, the disaster that we caused in Libya is uh, its a thing of history. Uh, they have no government. After seven years, they are simply in a state of anarchy where people roam the streets and murder and kill and steal, and there's no one you can go to and say, um, you know, I want to report a crime. You can't report a crime because there's no government. And we did that to them. We slaughtered people massively in, uh, in Libya. And, uh, we did it to capture uh, their very large arsenal and send it to Syria so that there we could continue killing people and we could install a puppet government run by Al Qaeda. We were trying to have Al-Qaeda take over Syria despite the fact that they had attacked the United States on 9-11. Just fantastic. The history needs to be written because it's, uh, uh, it's, it's almost beyond belief. And this is not my country. I was a, I was a United States Marine. I, I, I was enlisted to begin with. I, I ended up being a colonel, but we used to stand at attention in our underwear at night, every night, and we would be ordered to shout at the tops of our voice and, and sing the Marine Corps hymn. And there's a phrase that said, I will fight for right and freedom and to keep our honor clean. We're proud to, be, to claim the title of United States Marine. Our honor is not clean. The, the deep state that that holds its clutches on America has smeared and, and smeared filth on the, on the honor of the, of the United States. I respect the flag of the United States, the state of Virginia, the Marine Corps flag that are behind me. And I want our honor restored. I demand this back as a United States Marine. I demand that our honor be cleansed and uh, I will I will fight to my dying day to see this happen.